0: The book of Mark chronicles the last three years of Jesus here on earth. They were pretty intense years, to say the least. Since meeting John the Baptist, he was faced with temptations in the desert, performed miracles, healed people, gained followers, was transfigured and died a criminal's death, only to be raised from the dead. Why should all this matter to you and me? Join us for... The last three. Happy New Year. I hope you had a great Christmas. I hope you had a good, you know, turn of the year with friends and family. Hope you uh, were able to dodge COVID. Um, Those of you who are watching at home, maybe you weren't able to. So my greetings to you as well. Uh, But we're kicking off the year with a new series of sermons in the book of Mark. And this series that's starting today will take us all the way to Easter Sunday. Okay. Now the gospel of Mark is written by a man by the name of John Mark. Some of you thought that Mark was written by one of the disciples of Jesus. No, John Mark was not a disciple of Jesus. However, John Mark was best buddies with one of Jesus' disciples, a man by the name of Peter. How many of you know St. Peter, the one who betrayed Jesus right before the crucifixion? This gospel is written by John Mark through Peter's optics. Many scholars believe that 30 years after the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that Peter asked Mark to write down his memoirs of Jesus. And Mark, therefore, is the shortest gospel. Mark is also the first gospel. You know, the Bible has uh, four gospels that talk about the life of Jesus, that narrates the life of Jesus. That's how the New Testament starts. You have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Mark was the first one to be written. And Mark records the life of Jesus in a different way than the other gospel accounts do. So Matthew and Luke, they start with the birth narrative of Christ. Mark, no. Mark starts with an adult Jesus. Mark starts with Jesus' public ministry, which lasted three years, and that's why we're entitling the series The Last Three, because it talks about the last three years of Jesus' life, which were also his three years of public ministry that Mark records. Now, my hope throughout this series, as we go through this series, starting now all the way to Easter Sunday, is number one, that you would know Jesus for who he is. A lot of us know Jesus from others. A lot of us know Jesus from the opinions of others, from the optics of others, and I want to uh, invite you to get to know Jesus for yourself. A lot of people have problems with Christianity because they don't agree in certain ethics of Christianity. They uh, know certain Christians that are horrible examples, and I agree with that, but uh, don't Judge or don't question Christianity based on the bad examples of others, or maybe some issues that you may have an, a problem with, like science or ethics. Don't go, go there just yet. Start with Jesus. So, if you're here today and you are exploring Christianity, this is a perfect series for you to join us through because uh, it introduces you to the real Jesus of the Bible. And as you do, as we do, as we invite others, to journey with us through the gospel of Mark, my hope is that God will start to prepare the way, pave the way for some major breakthrough to take part in your life. I believe that. I believe that this year is going to be a year of breakthrough for you. I believe that this year is going to continue to be a year of breakthrough for Crossbridge, for Crossbridge Pinecrest, and God is going to use this series to prepare the way, to pave the way. With that being said, I want to invite you to Open with me, Mark 1, right in the very beginning, verses 1 through 8. We're going to read Mark 1, verses 1 through 8. That's what the Word of God says. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Let me tell you this, that pre-stuff matters. Pre-stuff matters. What do you mean by that? Well, when you're going to have a nice meal, appetizers matter. When you're going to watch your favorite singer or favorite band play, perform, a warm-up act matters. I don't know if you knew this about me, but in my teenage years, I played in a rock band. Uh, I never made it really big, as you can tell, but one of the things that we did was uh, we opened up for... Major acts that came into town, we were a very good uh, opening band. We got the crowd going, and at times, I uh, you know was really frustrated and wanted to quit because sometimes you 're playing there, people are walking in they don 't really care it 's kind of like preaching to middle schoolers, so you, you know people are walking in they 're not paying attention to you they 're not there for you. They're grabbing their drink. They're having conversations here. The room is sort of, sort, of, sort of still empty. Most people are still outside in the lobby. We're outside in the parking lot. And, um, you know, I, I, I asked many times, why are we doing this? I, I went to our manager. I said, I, I don't want to do this anymore. You know, maybe we should just play in smaller clubs for, you know, 50 people, 60 people. Then to play in these concerts. People are not here to see us. They don't care. And he says, guys, what you guys do really matters. You guys are a great opening band. One day, if you make it big, you're going to want a good opening band as well. Why? Because an opening band adjusts your eardrums to the loud music. An opening band sets the mood, sets the temperature for the room so that the main act can come and do their work. Same thing with a meal. Why is it important for you to have appetizers before a good meal? Because it uh, adjusts your palate. It opens up your appetite, right? Some of you are hungry. You're like, oh my gosh, I need to go eat right now. But most of all, both appetizers and warm up acts, what they do is they build anticipation. It reminds you that that's not it that something better and something bigger is coming. And that's how the gospel of Mark sort of starts. Maybe we were reading the passage and you said, hey, you said that uh, the gospel of Mark starts with Jesus' adult life and his public ministry. I didn't read one word here that said Jesus. Well, that's because God starts his big enterprise by warming things up, by setting the stage, by setting the temperature through John the Baptist, who is this uh, warm-up act before he ushers in his great salvation into the world. Every time, let me tell you something, every time that God is about to usher in a major breakthrough. Every time that God is about to do something big, he always prepares the way. He always builds momentum. My hope, as God prepares what he wants to do in your life through this series, is that he would be starting to build momentum in your life for some major breakthroughs in your own life this year as well. And every time that God prepares the way, and builds momentum for a major breakthrough. He does three things. And we see this here in this passage. The first thing that God does is he reminds us of his faithfulness. The second thing that God does is he takes us into the wilderness. And lastly, he offers us hope. Let's look at all these three things and what they mean for our own lives today. First, As God is building momentum in our lives to usher in a major breakthrough, to bring into our lives His great salvation, He reminds us of His faithfulness. I don't know if you were paying attention as we were reading the text, but in verses two and three, there's a quotation here. There's a quotation from the book of Isaiah. If you were here on Christmas Eve, I talked a little bit about Isaiah. Isaiah is a prophetic book that was written 700 years before the coming of Christ predicting the coming of Christ. Uh, They lived, uh, the people of Israel at the time, they lived under very difficult circumstances. They were always in and out of oppression. And God, through his prophets, not only Isaiah, but many others, that's basically what Old Testament literature is all about. God, through them, said, hey, listen, I know things are hard. I know things are tough. I know some of the hardships that you're going through right now is because of your own choices. It's because of your own disobedience. But one day I will restore your luck. One day I will restore your nation, and through your nation I will restore the world. One day I will do that by bringing forth an anointed one. So when you uh, go to the very first verse that we read, here's how Mark starts his gospel. The beginning of the gospel, which means good news, of Jesus Christ. Now the word Christ there is... The translation for the word Messiah in Hebrew, which means the anointed one. And some of you thought that Christ was Jesus' last name, as if there were Mary Christ and Joseph Christ and Jesus Christ. Christ means the anointed one. It means the Messiah. Jesus is the anointed one of God, the one that God one day will bring forth to restore the nation of Israel, to remove them from a condition and a situation of suffering, poverty, and oppression. And through them, he would bless all the nations. He would would bring forth a cosmic salvation. And that's why He also calls them the Son of God. It's the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is language of the prophet Daniel. That one day this figure would not only change Israel, but through him would change all the nations of the world. And so as they went through difficult seasons and times, after this prophecy, after this oracle, they remembered one day. God is going to restore things. What kept them going in and out of difficult season was this promise that God would one day restore things. In fact, that's what keeps anyone going. It's hope that in the future, God will do something unexpected. They didn't know when, but they hoped that that day one day would come. Now, here's what was happening to them. Years were going by. And they were beginning to question, is God really going to deliver on his promise? Is God ever going to come through? For 300 more years after this prophecy was delivered through Isaiah, God continued to speak through other prophets. But after 300 years, dead silence, God stopped speaking. If you didn't know this, the gap between the Old Testament and the New Testament is 400 years. No oracles, no prophecies, no word from God, no prophets, no nothing, just dead silence. And people living in that dark season of history, especially the Israelites, they were questioning, did God abandon us? Is God really faithful and true Does God exist? Maybe some of you are going through this season right now. Why isn't he showing up? I've been praying hard. I am expecting. I am hoping. But I see nothing in front of me. That's what was happening to them. And then 700 years later, 400 years of silence were broken by the voice crying out in the wilderness Fulfilling the word of Isaiah. And many who heard John preaching in this frantic way out in the desert started to ask themselves, is God really now fulfilling that old promise? Is that prophecy now being fulfilled? Many people said to themselves, it cannot be. It's just another revolutionary. And they didn't bother, but many went to meet John where he was preaching in the desert. And they began to wonder, could it be? Could God be really fulfilling his promise? Is God really faithful? Is he demonstrating his faithfulness right now? Is this the work and the act of God? Like I said, before God does something great, as he builds momentum in our lives, one of the things that God always does as momentum is building in our lives is he reminds us of his faithfulness. He reminds us of his promise. A delivered promise is always the proof that God will always deliver. Why? Because we doubt, we question, we give up, we quit on expecting and waiting. We do. There's a story in the Bible that uh, records uh, the life of this man by the name of Gideon in the book of Judges. And he was a peasant man, and God came one day to Gideon when he was working out in the fields and says, Gideon, I am going to turn you into this great war hero, and you are going to deliver my people from the yoke of the Midianites. It was a nation that was oppressing the people of Israel. And obviously, this guy is, uh, is a peasant, and he says, huh, <laughs> I was not trained in war. I don't know how to fight. How, how, how is this ever going to happen? And God said, don't worry, I'm going to do it. And so he says, I need some proof that you're really going to come through. So he does this deal with God and says, okay, when the rain comes overnight, I want to take this piece of cotton and I'm going to put it on the field and you're going to have to keep this piece of cotton dry when the rain comes down. And if it is dry in the morning, I know that it was you confirming what you're saying to me. He does that. Surely enough, the thing is dry. And he says, oh, let, let us switch it around. Now I want everything dry and the piece of cotton wet in the morning. And God does it again. Why? Because a delivered promise is the proof that God will always deliver. Some of you are going through a season right now, and you're beginning to see some of God's promises being fulfilled right in front of you. It's not that God hasn't been faithful to you. It's just that he has opened your eyes to see his promises being fulfilled right in front of you. It was a season that you didn't think that you were going to make it, and you made it. It was a season where you thought that there would be no provision, and provision came. It was a word that was spoken to you. Maybe right now God is using this very moment to remind you that he is faithful and that he has fulfilled many promises in your life, including some of the ones that you've seen in the Most recent days, which I don't know where they are, but if he is confirming any sort of promises in your life right now, that's a good sign (laughs) because you know that he is building momentum for some major breakthrough to take place. How many of you have been sensing in the last few days God's promises being fulfilled right in front of you? That's a good sign. But as he's building momentum, not only does he remind us of his faithfulness, remind us of his faithfulness, but he takes us into the wilderness. The text tells us in verse 5 that all the country of Judea and all of Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan. As John began his ministry, people from all the region of Palestine, people from the Galilean region around the Lake of Galilee, north of Jerusalem, were leaving their places of familiarity, were leaving their places of comfort, and they were going to the desert to meet John because maybe God was doing something fresh. Maybe God was doing something new. And so were the people in the big city of Jerusalem. They were traveling from Jerusalem all the way into their into the desert, leaving their place of familiarity, leaving their jobs, leaving everything behind because maybe God was doing something fresh. Maybe God was acting upon his promises. But the question I've asked before, maybe you're asking right now, is why the desert? Why couldn't have God just rented a hall in the city, or why couldn't he have just showed up at the temple, which is the place that he is actually supposed to show up and talk to the people there? Why does he have to meet people out in the wilderness? Because if you're familiar with the Bible, before God does something great, he not only reminds people that he is faithful, but he always meets them in the wilderness. Remember Abraham? Abraham lived a very comfortable life with his family in the land of Ur, of the Chaldeans. And God said, Abraham, I have a promise that I want to fulfill in your life, but in order for you to experience that promise, you're going to have to leave your place of familiarity. You are going to have to leave your family behind. You are going to have to leave your comforts. He was a very wealthy man, and you're going to have to follow me. Where? Just follow me through the wilderness. Remember Jacob as he was running away from his brother after cheating his brother of his brother's inheritance. He is broke. He is filled with guilt. He is lost. He's in the middle of the wilderness. Where does God meet him? God does not wait for him to get a job, to get his life back together, to speak to him. No, God meets Jacob out in the wilderness. Where does God meet Moses? Where does God speak to Moses? God speaks to Moses, not in the palace in Egypt, but God speaks to Moses while he's in exile after killing a man, living a life of obscurity out in the desert, tending the sheep of his father-in-law. That's where God speaks to him, in the wilderness. Where does God meet David? Where does God prepare David to become a king? In the wilderness of En Gedi. That's where God meets David. David. And that's where God meets Jesus, and we'll see that in the next few weeks, in the desert as well. Because, because the power of the gospel is never made strong in the context of strength and power. It's always made strong in the context of weakness. That's why Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, because theirs is the kingdom of God unless you realize that you are absent of resources, unless you realize that the things of this world, because the wilderness is a metaphor for life in this world. Every time the Bible talks about wilderness, it's a metaphor for life in this world. Unless you realize that the things of this world cannot satisfy, the things of this world cannot fulfill, the things of this world are unfit to allow our lives to flourish, unless you realize that. There is no encounter with God. You can only encounter God in a context of humility, of weakness, of poverty, in a context of wilderness. I know when somebody is going through a period of wilderness, either because they've lost all of the things that they have deposited all their hopes in, or they've grown disappointed with the things that they thought would deliver them joy and hope, and they're now discouraged with life And they're uh, now thinking about quitting some way or another. I know that even though they look at that with very negative eyes, I know that that's a great place to be because God is trying to build momentum for some major breakthrough in their lives. When God wants to do something big in our lives, He takes us to the wilderness. And when you go to the wilderness or when you find yourself in the wilderness, which sometimes uh, you, you're filled with things around you, but you just feel empty and lonely and, and, and parched. Uh, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a state of the heart. It's a state of the soul. It's what John of the cross used to call the dark night of the soul. But sometimes it's caused by circumstances as well. Regardless, when you find yourself in a place like that, you have to know how to respond. There's a wrong way to respond. There's a right way to respond. What's the wrong way to respond? Most people, when they go through seasons of wilderness in their lives, what do they do? They go to God and they ask God, God, can you help me escape this place? I can't handle it anymore. It's not good for my heart. It's not good for my soul. I can't take it. Help me to escape. And Sometimes they'll find their own escaping enterprises through work. Work sometimes is escape. Entertainment is escape. Working on your image too much is escape. Searching romance is escape. You know that the things of this world will not satisfy, but you don't want to think about it, and so you escape. You go to God and you say, hey, God, please get me out of here. That's the wrong way. To go about it. There's a French thinker by the name of Jean Varnier that he he wrote this at some point. He says, It is only when we are truly alone, without someone else to lean on, left with our own inner solitude, that we can undergo a process of change. Get that? The introspection that is needed to bring out the light that has dwindled down to ash and reignite the fire of our being. So let the darkness shape you. Let it reform you. Let it cradle you and birth you into a new life. Let the spark flame again. In the darkness is where you will find it. What is the wrong way to approach Seasons of wilderness, God, help me to escape. Here's the right way. You ready for this? Here's the right way to approach the wilderness. Ask God to meet you in the wilderness. Don't go to God and say, God, take me out of the wilderness to say, God, meet me here. I am here. I'm going to embrace the season. I'm going to embrace the darkness. And I expect to meet you here. Do what you must. And if you do, you will realize a couple things. There was a pastor that I knew that he was very successful But he lost everything. He made some bad decisions, poor judgment, lost everything. Lost his church, lost his ministry, lost his family. He recovered later, but this is what he told us one time. He says that you don't know that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. And some of you need to have these things stripped away from you so that you can realize that Jesus is all you really need. You don't need that job. You don't need that image. You don't need that title. You don't need those belongings. You don't need nothing. All you need is Jesus. And unless these things are stripped away from you, you don't know. But here's the second thing, too, that you will realize. If you take that posture of embracing the wilderness, that season of life, that dark night of the soul, not only will Jesus remind you that you have what you need in him. But what God really wants to do is not to remove you really out of the wilderness, but use your life to turn the wilderness into a garden. You hear that? The problem of us saying to God, God, I want to leave the wilderness is because you're going to miss out on the opportunity of how God wants to use you to use your life to turn the wilderness into a garden. What's happening here? John has turned the wilderness into a garden. People are coming to meet him in the wilderness. The gospel is being preached. People are repenting. They're experiencing new life. (laughs) The wilderness has become a garden. Listen, when the darkness comes, embrace the darkness because God wants you to be the light in the darkness. That's what you'll begin to see. So hear me out. If you're going through a season of wilderness right now, if you're not, you may this year. When you do, or if you're at it right now, remember, this is a good sign. This is a good sign. Because God wants to reveal to me the need that I have for him. And that he wants to use me for something big. There's a major breakthrough coming. Here's the third thing that I know that happens when God is building momentum for major breakthrough. He reminds us of his faithfulness. Secondly, he takes us where? To the mall? No. To the wilderness. Some of you are like, yeah. Take me to the mall. Take me out of my wilderness. Thirdly, he offers you hope. Look, look at the last couple of verses, verses seven and eight. I love these last two verses uh, because it, it tells us the content of John's preaching. This is, this is John preaching. In verse seven, John says this this is how he preaches After me comes he who is mightier than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. You know, John was gaining a lot of popularity. He was a powerful preacher. Many people thought that he was the reincarnation of the prophet Elijah, that very powerful prophet that did all sorts of crazy stuff, made axes float. I mean, fire comes down from heaven through his life. I mean, they thought this is the reincarnation of Elijah. This guy is powerful. He's sort of becoming this rock star, right? He uh, has long hair. He is... Uh, and Nazarite, meaning he could not never cut his hair, so i 'm thinking this guy is like dreadlocks, tall, big, long beard, dressed in leather that 's what the text says. By the way, that 's why I'm dressed in leather today in honor of John the Baptist. So he, here he is in the desert, powerful person, charismatic person. People are coming and drove they're leaving their comforts to be there with John, and John says, don't look at me. Stop looking at me i 'm just a vehicle i 'm just an instrument i 'm just a bridge. And by the way, you have no idea what's coming. You think now is good. You think now you've seen God at work. You have no idea of the power that's coming to you. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. That's who he is. John is saying, hey, there's a season of power coming in your life. See, this is something that they long for, power for them is something that they only knew from the hands of others because they were under oppression. But power to you, instilling power in you, oh, that was hope for them. And this is how John says that he would usher in power. You ready? Verse 8. This is the last verse. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And if you read the parallel text in Matthew's gospel, he says the Holy Spirit and fire. The Holy Spirit and fire. John is saying, I'm baptizing you with water. He will be baptizing you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, I I want you to understand the contrast between Jesus' ministry and the ministry of John. The ministry of Jesus and the ministry of religion. What John is saying, the only way I can deliver power in you is the way every religion has to deliver power to you. Through principles, through uh, rituals, I can help you by taking you to the river as you repent of your sins, and I can wash you. I can baptize you. Baptism is a symbolism of purification. Now, think, now, now, understand this. Power, what John is saying, is related to purity. You see what I'm saying? Power is related to purity. So think about this. I come from Brazil. The, the, the fuel there, engine fuel, horrible. Why? Because it's mixed in with ethanol. When you put ethanol in real gasoline, what does it do? It takes away the power because the additives remove the power. If you take a fresh squeezed orange juice and you pour in 16 ounces of water in it, what will it do? It will water down the juice. It will reduce the power of the juice. Some of you right now are going through the whole 30 because you want to cleanse yourself. And by the way, let me tell you, uh, since Labor Day, I've been doing intermittent fasting, you know, sort of trying to purify and cleanse my body on a daily basis. I feel a lot more energy because power comes with purity. And what he's saying is some power is going to come into your life through the baptism that I'm going to administer to you by cleaning you. But here's the problem with my baptism. I can't clean the surface but you're going to be dirty again because that's how it happens with water. You know, you clean something with water and then it gets dirty again. You need another cleansing with water. What he's saying is this guy's going to come and clean with fire. You know how you clean with fire? Like, like take, take, a, take a, a rock from a grave or from the ground. And it has gold in it. And if you find that there's impurities around it on the surface, you can wash it off. But there's still impurities inside of it. And it removes, I mean, that, that, the, those impurities inside of it, uh, they water down, they take away the worth of that precious metal, unless you put that metal under high temperatures, and you melt it, and the impurities evaporate, and then it's reshaped, remolded, and it's renewed. It becomes something else, something new of the same essence, but purified essence And he's saying that's what he's going to come to do. And he's not doing that on the outside. The Holy Spirit does its work on the inside. He wants to put fire inside of you to purify you so that your life can be lived in power and not in fear. Imagine if you could live your life in power and not in fear. Many of the decisions that we make in life are based on fear. I'm not going to do that because I'm going to displease somebody here or there. It's not whether it's right or wrong, or it's the best decision or the right decision, you're thinking, I I don't want to get any backlash. I don't want to get pushbacks. You see what I'm saying? So much of our life is based on the approval and what people are going to think about us because we live in fear. But what if you could live life in power from the inside out, not the outside? See, religion has the ability to cleanse you on the outside, but only Jesus has the ability to clean you on the inside. Religion can baptize you on the outside, but only Jesus can baptize you on the inside. And that's what he wants to do in your life. He wants to baptize you on the inside, purify you on the inside. What does that look like? Faith. What is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? It's not a special experience that you're speaking in tongues. At least I don't believe that that's the case. I believe baptism of the Holy Spirit is conversion, is regeneration of the heart, it's turning your eyes away from things and into Jesus, believing that Jesus took the filth of your sin upon himself, went to the cross, received the full wrath of God, the fire of God descended on him so that you and I can be purified of our sins. When you believe that your cleanliness, when you believe that your power can only come from the fitness of somebody else, God is building some momentum for some major breakthrough in your life. Here's what I believe. I believe that as God continues to use this series to build momentum, I believe that as this book continues to build momentum to introduce us to the real Christ, God will continue to build momentum in your life. If you're seeing God's promises being unfolded and fulfilled right before your eyes, if God has taken you to the wilderness, See that as something good. There's hope there because he's about to do something great. I believe that this year is going to be a breakthrough year for you. I'm going to say that again. It's going to be a breakthrough year for you. It's going to be a breakthrough year for our church. And he's going to do that as we have more of Jesus in our lives. I mean, how many of you right now can sense God building momentum in your life? Come on. How many of you can sense God building momentum in your life? How many of you? (laughs) I do. Don't raise your hand if you don't feel it. If you feel it, do it. I feel it. And even though we have a half full room because of, uh, you know, COVID, I can feel that God is building some major momentum here in the life of this church. Receive this. Embrace it. Set your hopes in Jesus today.